This is the official HITS training and consulting podcast. We are America's law enforcement canine training resource. We're raising the training bar for police dogs everywhere by discussing the intricate details of the training techniques used by the experts. HITS radio is merging the training world with the real world. You've been there. We've been there too. Welcome to HITS radio. I'm your host, Jeff Meyer. Today I have my friend uh, Cameron Ford on with us again. We did a show uh, just recently, and it was the first part of this. So we're doing part two today. We're talking about cognition testing for um, dogs, uh, primarily probably detection dogs, but a lot of this had some bleed over for a patrol dog also. But if you did not hear the first part of this, uh, please scroll back in your podcast app. Check out the first part. Uh, It'll make a lot more sense to you about what we're talking about because I don't want to spend a lot of time reviewing what we've already talked about. So we're going to jump right in. We uh, left the first part episode. We had talked about two of the five or six uh, cognition tests that Cameron does. I'm gonna let Cameron jump in here uh, and just kind of pick back up where we left off and get going again. Uh, Cameron, how are you doing today? I'm doing great and thanks for having me on again. It's my pleasure to expand upon where we where we uh, talked about last time with the canine cognition. And like you said, it does apply to dual purpose dogs as well as single purpose detection dogs. Great. And I think we mentioned in the last class, we'll say right, or last uh, podcast, we'll say that you're going to be teaching this class at uh, in Phoenix at HITS 2020 in Phoenix. So HITSCanada.net, you can go on there, you'll see uh, Cameron's bio, you'll see, and we'll put some links for uh, uh, all the different social media. Cameron's out there, he's pretty easy to find, but I'll put all the links both to, uh, how to how to track Cameron down, how to check out uh, HITS Canine, how to get a hold of me, as well as uh, Cameron uh, referenced a few times that there's some YouTube videos that he's done that you can then go and look at uh, the links that I'll put in the show notes showing all the different uh, tests that we're talking about. So really good information kind of here with, here today, and then you can uh, look at the videos. And then if you're really interested in it, it's pretty easy to track Cameron down and uh, email him and get some more information and find out different ways you can do classes there in Vegas with him or he'll come to you. So there's a lot of opportunities if this is something you're interested in. It's kind of uh, newer newer stuff in our uh, police dog world, but I think um, before too long, this is going to be kind of standard standard operating procedure to at least pay attention to this a lot more than, than what we have in the past for sure. So um, Cameron, I think we talked about the first two tests and that was on the, the podcast. We talked, we touched a little bit about mental flexibility in the last test. We'll probably talk about that a little bit more. So um, assuming everybody's listened to the, the first uh, podcast, let's just dive in and what would be the yeah. third test you would do with the dog? And yeah. Where would you, where would you keep going with it? And, and right I have you... one quick question that I thought about. Yes, go ahead. Is is these tests? Are you um, doing the test, putting the dog away, setting up the test? Is there downtime, and how much is there? Does that affect the tests at all, or are you trying to kind of keep them moving as fast as possible for the dog? Sure, I'll cover that. And and what I'll say too is the you know, the lecture that I've done every year it hits with you and uh, the kind of evolve from on the mark, you yeah. know, market training class to now cognition with detection uh, a lot of these tests is where we kind of evolved as the training methodology to ensure that the dogs cognitively are actually better at understanding detection detection skills uh, than they were before using a typical methodology so you know like you said the mental flexibility part i want a dog who wants to who has the tendency to work and search the environment problem solve it without using 
human information and human gestures to figure it out. So the that mental flexibility part is very important. The sequence of the tests basically is I break it into two categories. So like we talked about test one was the pointing cue test, both versions, pointing where I do have the item and pointing to where the item is not, but the dog does know where, where the item is at and will it go kind of against where I'm pointing and, and go to where the, it knows where the toy or food is at. Yeah. The, the next one was that marker cue where I place the item on top of the bucket that has the desired item, the toy or food there. And does the dog make the inference to follow and go to that object? Cause it's different than the other one that has nothing on top of it and follow it. So the third part is it's, uh, so that's called all that is inference. The third one is called causality and all causality is, is basically, I call it my David Copperfield dog, you know, test is because you show the dog, the item, you put it behind the board, you go over to your left or go over to your right first. And on the ground, as you start this test to your left and to your right, it looks like there's two small square blankets on the ground, you know? So when you back yeah. up and go to the right, you go to the side, it's got a blanket in the ground. The divider that you have kind of sits in front of that blanket. So now the dog can't see the blanket. All the dog sees is you kind of do like, do like a little flip with a blanket, like you're like you're, you're popping it out yeah. from the dryer and, and making it, you know, popping all the dust off of it or whatever. And then you place the blanket, and if it's the side that would have the bucket with a toy underneath it, the blanket goes on top of that bucket. You then get up and you move to your left. You pick up that blanket. You do the same thing, except this blanket goes flat on the ground because there is no bucket there. So yeah. there's a, basically a bump and then one that's flat. Can the dog make the inference that the one with the big bump is where or has what they're looking for underneath it? And again, we would look at it and go, that's pretty easy to figure out. That one has a big bump on it. That one doesn't. You'd be amazed that dogs who don't really are not really proficient at making an inference just randomly pick. They just guess. So sometimes they're going to go to the side that's just the blanket on the ground. And sometimes they'll go to the side that's got the bump underneath it. Some dogs, like I talked about the last episode, tend to go to the, let's say the left or the right, whatever their side yeah. is dominant, and they just do that every single time. So they end up being right sometimes, but it's just by chance, not by actually any kind of yeah. making an inference. So those three tests, causality, pointing cue, and marker cue are the first cycle that I do. Those, So I do those three tests okay. if I can. And again, I have no problem stopping I could do one test at a time if I wanted to. If I'm working with a younger dog, I might just yeah. do that. If a dog is, let's say, six months to you know, nine, ten months old, I might just do one test at a time but, and not do yeah. three in a row just because I, I want to have the dog be able to kind of digest what's going on and then have a fair look at that dog's mental capability. Because, again, some dogs, again, when they're younger, they're not going to be as focused for longer periods of time. It's just like a little kid. You know, they're going to go squirrel and then get distracted and stuff like that. Yeah. So well, that, that brings to mind a question. I, I got a question mm-hmm. on that. Is, um, is there an age that you want to wait till the dog gets to? Or can you do this with a puppy and understand that as he develops, the will the results change or does that does it kind of give you an idea as a puppy? Yeah. So I, I don't, I have not gone any younger than six months old. Um, there, but we do have the tests okay. that we do younger with, with puppies like weeks old. And those tests are similar, but very different. So there's that. Okay. Cause right now one part of the research that was done was how predictive was this? How, how young in age could we see what we're looking for okay. in a dog? 
and then test it again at six months and then test it again at a year old and see if all these things kind of lined up. And, it, and even though there might be some slight variations, what we saw at weeks old was predictive to this being a successful okay. working dog when it reached a year old. But for the well, average that's, person, that's good to know because yeah, your, your average person is not going to test a dog. Correct. And, and we're looking for, you got it with the average agency yeah. or someone out to buy dogs every so often, or the vendor that's out to go to Europe or wherever they get their dogs from can apply some of these tests. We do this for the dogs that are in that age range that you're going to use for work. So yeah. Uh, the test that I, everything I'm talking okay. about is for dogs that are that are going to be able to work within a few months of of their current age. Yeah. So and then I have one so other sequence, question that came to mind. Go ahead. Let me ask you one other question that came to mind while while you were uh, describing the last test and any of the, the the first two tests. So you've got the the barrier in front that you raise that barrier up and the dog gets to kind of survey the landscape and see these two claws and one has a bump under it. How long do you hold on to the dog before you send him down to to do whatever he's going to do? So as as the people when they if they follow the link to the video will basically see this. So they I step forward, I show the dog the item in the bucket. This is the causality test. This is the one with uh-huh. the towels on the ground. So I show them the item in the bucket. I put the bucket behind the divider. I walk back. I go to my right, and like I said, whatever the form says, if it says put it on the left, yeah. I still go to my right first. I do the little towel flip. I put it on the ground, and when I pick up my barrier, I also pick up the bucket so the dog doesn't see it. I go to my left. I then do the same sequence, do the little towel flip, and I put the towel yeah. over the bucket. Once I step back to the middle mark, which means that I'm standing exactly in the middle between the two sides, I yeah. say, okay. And when I say the word okay, that's when the handler lets the dog go. The dog can go forward and make a decision, left or right. And okay. once, it, and that's, again, and the, the nuances to all of this is, one, the dog, once you say, okay, it has 15 seconds to make a decision. I've never had any working dog take more than three seconds to make a decision. Now, okay. that's what I thought. doing pet dogs and things like that, sometimes some dogs will go someplace else. Another caveat, before you even start any of these tests, you do what we call warm-ups, where you're just doing the dogs at the correct spot, the test, the person administering the test is in their spot, and all you're doing is you're showing the dog a toy in a bucket or the food in the bucket, and you put the bucket in the normal spots they would be during the test, except you just tell the dog, okay, it can run up to the bucket and get, so basically they realize all it is is the buckets mean something. So before yeah. I even start any okay. test, you always do a warm up period. So one, they're used to the new space, whatever that space is or a room that you're testing in or yeah. a garage or what have you. And you're just doing a thing where they see two or three buckets out in front of them and they know when you show it to them, you put it in the ground, you say, okay, they're allowed to run up and go check out the buckets. Then, once we see a dog who's constantly going up to the buckets and understands, okay, this is all a fun game, then you start doing those tests I'm describing. Okay. So, So now that we've done... three. Yes. Now, see, now that we've done those first three, which is inference, the next one is memory. And based off of memory, what I do, it's it's basically now three buckets in front of you. And they're basically the same spots as when you had only two, but now you have a third one in the middle. You show the dog the item toy or food, and you put it under whatever bucket, left, right, or middle, whatever the form says to do, you put it under that one. As soon as the dog sees that you put it under whatever bucket, you have a long divider that basically you pick. It's behind the buckets right now, but then you pick it up and you place it in front of the buckets. So now the dog can no longer see the three buckets in front of them. They just see the little mini wall in front of them. Yeah. And and that thing is only, like I said, it's only maybe 24 inches tall. It's not even two feet in height. Yeah usually about five or six feet in length because you got to be able to 
have it go across the stretch of three buckets. You have a person who's there timing for you. So usually this, these tests always work better with three people. The person holding the dog, the person administering the test, the third person who is what I call the scribe, they're writing down the score yeah. and they're keeping track of times for you. Because on this test, okay. the first three reps are 20 seconds. So once that barrier goes in front of those buckets, you wait 20 seconds. Also very important to note, no matter what test you do, as the person administering the test, you do not want to, so like say during that 20 seconds, I should not be looking at the dog really. I shouldn't even be looking down at where the, the correct bucket is. I'm, I'm looking pretty much like doing the thousand yard stare past the person holding the dog. I'm looking sure. at the wall. I'm looking at the ceiling. I'm, I'm trying not to give any cues as to what I, uh, the answer could be from me. So anyway, once okay. 20 seconds happens, I pull the barrier back and I say, okay, the dog is then let, you know, allowed to go forward and to make a choice on whatever bucket they pick. And again, if they pick the correct bucket, they, run over, they just run over to it. You just knock it over for them and let them get the toy out. Again, there's no set involved in this. This is just them running towards the whatever one that they uh, decided to pick. What is kind of cool is some of the dogs that are good at this game, you will see them during that 20-second time frame every now and then look to where they know the toy's at or the bucket that it's underneath. So if it's, uh-huh. let's say, off to the left, as they're waiting, every now and then you'll see their head look down to the left. And they keep like, can I go? Can I go? Can I go? And they yeah, look down to the left. Yeah. They're telling you the answer before they even go. And then as yeah. soon as you pull that barrier <laughs> back, they take off and they end up making the right choice. So after three times of 20 seconds, you do the exact same thing, except now it's 40 seconds. So these 40, so then you do 20 seconds or 40 seconds. And then after that's done, you continue on and you do 20 seconds. There is no break. So once you start memory, you're not stopping until you get through 20 seconds, 40 seconds, and then now 20 seconds distracted. So during this 20 seconds, you're basically trying to pet, sing. You're, you're petting the dog. You're singing to the dog. You're distracting it from looking forward. So you're either standing in front of it. Or you're petting it, you're on your knees, you're you're just basically being a pain in the butt and you're distracting it from trying to remember or pay attention okay. to where you put it. Yeah. And you feel completely silly. I've had people sing ABCs <laughs> and happy birthday or whatever they can think of in their head to create noise and to pet and distract the dog during that 20 seconds. And then again, same thing, 40 seconds. So it's 20 seconds, nothing, 40 seconds, nothing, and then 20 seconds with distraction three times. 40 seconds distraction three times. So it's six reps, but it's broken into three times 20 seconds, three times 40 seconds, three times 20 seconds distracted, three times 40 seconds distracted, and then you're done with a memory test. And what's crazy is I could have a dog bomb 20 seconds undistracted and, and not get hardly any of them right, maybe get one right. But then 40 seconds with distraction be 100% accurate. And that's a phenomenon. You're like, how is this possible? How do I have a dog who can't even pay attention to 20 seconds yeah. where there's nothing going on, but 40 seconds distracted totally nails it. And that's because how they channel the brain and the segments of the brain that they're working with, when they're distracted, they'll become more hyper-focused and because they know they really want that item and they want to get to it. When it's 20 seconds undistract or no distraction, the dog wants to go to it, wants to go to it, and then realize they can't, so they start looking around. And then what we realize is some of those dogs 
don't really have phenomenal, let's say, short-term memory. They get, they, uh-huh. they fall into the thing of like, squirrel, what's going on? Nothing's happening. I can't get yeah. what I want, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to smell the ground. I'm going to look around, and they just don't pay attention. So then when 20 seconds is up, they walk forward. They don't remember what you did. But when you distract them, they stay hyper-focused. They're like, I, I just want to see where you, he put that toy. I just saw them put it over here, and you keep trying to block me. And then they actually become more focused and, and give more attention. So it's, it's unique. They, have, they still have good memory, but it's different between that shorter term with nothing happening and then a longer period of time when you're constantly trying to distract them. So it's unique, and you can't, like you said before, you, when you look at a dog – and you think they bomb one segment of a test, Yeah, you you might see they do really well at something else you had no clue could happen, and then you get a really good uh, – you can still see a, uh, a, a very good picture of the dog and what it's capable of when you finish doing all those tests. So – and we mentioned this in the first uh, uh, podcast, but just in case somebody didn't listen to the first one for some reason, mm-hmm. this obviously is done after the selection test. So Correct. any good selection test, we're going to be uh, we're going to be diligent about testing this dog to see how distracted they are and what their distractibility is. And you know, I like taking dogs almost to you know. I've, I've, I had a vendor one time tell me I was unfair because you know if I could take them to a dog park, I will. I, not sure. not if there's dogs in there, but just for the odor on the ground and stuff. Yeah. So yeah, so um, a dog that has passed all of that, he's going to do you know. It, the you know whatever the results are on this test this is again this is just information as to how you're going to train him doesn't mean that because he struggles with that or right. does it that maybe yeah. this isn't the no it, it it really again gives you better insight into the dog in front of you now i will say this uh you know what i did the testing both for when i was with navy the navy seal program and with even myself in recent times um if given the choice, and I have, I've narrowed it down to two dogs I really like, and I go through these tests, I will tend to pick the dog who makes an inference. They, they score really high on inference. Reason for that is because I want a dog who has the capability to problem solve when I'm not there, or where there's no human, uh, you know, uh, there's no human there to help them problem solve. Sure, they're they are willing yeah. to be mentally flexible enough to try things to find what it is they're looking for or find what gives them reinforcement. So I will lean towards a dog who scores well on inferences if I have my choice of memory over inference. If I see a dog and the dog I really like scores really high in memory, like I said, it gives me that that like magic eight ball kind of thing where I can see ahead a little bit and go, okay, I know in training I need to make some modifications sooner or pay attention to the fact the dog may sure. go to memory before it uses its nose and any way I can help avoid that or create a training situation where the dog, the, the way to, to use his memory is limited. It has to actually do something different will help them progress the training faster. So that's where that, that helps me is, you know, I'm able to make some adjustments and, or like I said, if I really was kind of splitting hairs, I would lean towards inference just because we do want a dog who can think for themselves, make decisions on their own, and not really need the handler or want the handler for information. Yeah, that makes sense. So, so what's the, the, the next test? 
So no, there's so those are so the other one would be unsolvable. And like I said, this okay. test is That's very right similar to what a lot of people would do during yeah. their natural uh, the selection test they use in general, where you take something the dog wants, they can't get to it. How long do they stay going after it with no human contact? So in the test that I'll do is I have like a clear plexiglass container, or you can even use like a, a wire container or like a wire cube or whatever, just big enough to put their toy in, but there's no way for the dog to really get it out. It's very difficult. Um, or it's heavy and they can't really move it around that well. You know, you can do the same thing with chain link fence. I can put the ball on one side of the chain link fence and have yeah, the dog yeah, on the yeah. other. And how long do they stay going after it despite me moving Their away? Tenacity. Yeah. You got it. But what I'm looking for at that, though, is a dog who can manage its emotions. So I want a dog who's constantly trying to get at it, but they're not losing their mind doing it, if that makes sense. Yeah. I don't, you know, they're, yep. if they're going crazy, biting and pulling the fence and just going nuts. Yeah, that can look cool, but I can promise you, you're going to see major parts of that personality show itself in areas that you do not want it. So exactly. I want a dog who's clear-headed, who's trying to problem solve, trying to figure out how to get around the item, get to it, climb over. Like they're, they're trying to do something, but they're not losing their mind as they do it because a dog who becomes that state of arousal has a hard time controlling themselves in the sense that if you're in red line, are you really learning? Whereas yeah, if, you're, if you're at that higher rev level, but you're not redlining yet, you're still effective. But once you've kind of redlined, think about later on, and I know you teach us a lot with uh, the e-collar classes, but a dog who's in that high level of arousal in their mental state, whining, barking, biting, scratching, yeah. you're, it's not effective. And you're trying, so when you're trying to teach an out, look at how much you're fighting just besides teaching you know so you're fighting yeah all and there's of that no training there's no training that can happen yeah they no. can't they can't learn at that point no so even though it it can that arousal state can look really good on certain tests that you that you've done in your normal selection testing but when you see it in a in a in a way that you're using it to the dog for the problem solving and you're seeing them reach that level of excitement while they try to problem solve tells you they're not going to be really all that well at problem solving because they can't control themselves Mentally, they become overstimulated, yeah, which usually sense. equals stress, or it exhibits itself through aggression. And again, that's something you you can look at and avoid. So if I saw that, say I really liked the dog during selection, but then as I did these brain games and I saw the dog exhibit that high state of mental arousal, I would end up not taking that dog at that point because I knew it it does not know how to manage its emotion in a sense. And I'm using emotion in the, in the yeah. sense that it's, it's drive levels get so high or it's motivation gets so high. They just can't function anymore. They're not problem solving. They're not doing anything besides managing their arousal state. So, and all of us that have dealt with dogs that get to that level, you realize how difficult they are to train. Yeah. That kind of brings us full circle. I mean, over the years, we've always talked about drives and character traits of the dog. And, you know, so I think, you know, we, in the past, we'd probably call that a, a high drive dog without yeah. ever thinking the cognition end of it that you know there's a lot of high drive dogs that their mind works quite well and they can absolutely they can like you say control themselves there's other high drive dogs that just and and even low medium low drive dogs whatever mm -hmm. that just um are kind of spastic you know with yeah with a very little very little reason to be you know as keyed up as they get so i think it's interesting to to kind of start putting all these pieces together of this puzzle uh, I think it, as we move forward, it's only going to get more and more where we're paying attention to this, I'm sure.
Oh, yeah. I mean, as you know, and you've got to see, you know, through our discussions and other stuff that you've seen personally is the science aspect has encompassed our dog training world a lot more than it ever used to. You know, when you and I first started, you've been doing it 30 plus years. I've been doing it 26 years now. It was non-existent for the most part of those first, uh, I would say, at least 10 to 15 years. You didn't really hear much at all about uh, any type of psychological or science-based approach to training or selecting dogs or anything along those lines. Where now it's a lot more. I think readily the, you know, I think the Germans, you know, the PSP test is yeah has a lot of a uh, you know psychology to it. You know, I think that's. But I think as far as you know, really starting to pay attention to some of the cognition and you know just applying you know the the science that's been around forever you know as far as yep. go back to pavlov i think uh, yeah i think more people are being more open-minded to it which is i think it's an exciting time to be a dog trainer because oh for sure uh, and even even in this uh in this cognition stuff you know i've been talking to you about this for well over a year now and i know the first stuff you sent me i don't know if it came from duke or whatever but it yep. was um, obviously it was done by some scientists and uh, it didn't, it didn't make a ton of sense to me because I guess I'm not smart enough to be a scientist, but <laughs> I think now that, you know, there's people that are, are applying it to our profession like you that, yeah. you know, can now kind of, uh, mold it and make it, uh, make them quick, easy to understand tests and everything. I think it's only going to become more and more widely accepted. So I'll just say, I appreciate all the work you're doing on it. Oh, I appreciate it too. No. And, and that kind of became, I didn't, the funny part was I didn't plan to do this. It, it was, it kind of just fell into my lap and I kind of looked at certain things a certain way. And I said, huh, I want more information on that. And as things unfolded yeah. and working with the academic world and the science and the science side of things, I, you know, they were just as enamored in dealing with us because as many of us know, they do a lot of the research with very controlled conditions. And a lot of our arguments from the professional side of things was like, yeah, that's great. Good information, but you're doing it in a way that doesn't make sense for what yeah. really happens down the line. So by kind of ending yeah. up in the position I'm in, I end up being the voice on our side of the equation going, well, see guys, this is why it doesn't work. And then they'll go, holy cow, I never thought about it in that way. It's just because they don't know. They're not exposed to yeah. those of us in the professional world. But now, thanks to the internet and social media and all these kind of things, information sharing became a whole lot easier than it ever used to be. And now both sides are talking to each other a whole lot more. So you have, you have Penn Vet, you know, at, up in the Northeast and you've got Duke university. You've got Auburn has been around a long time. You've now got Texas tech university with their canine olfaction laboratory. And there's many others out there as well. I'm just naming the, the top ones that I've dealt with yeah. myself personally most often. Um, but with all that said, because of that, there's more information being shared and it's reaching us easier through podcasts like this or the one I do and, and the, the, just like I said, Facebook and Instagram and all those different things that exist where you can share information faster. Yeah. It's, it's now where the scientists can go, okay, guys, we hear what you're saying. So we're going to now going to do a research project that looks at this. And because yeah. of that, we now are finally on our side getting the answers that we've always wondered, or it just confirms stuff we've already known because, Hey, I'm a guy in Tennessee and I've worked dogs forever. And I always saw my dog do this. So yeah, scientist at Duke, thanks for the information, but I've known that for 20 years, you know, yeah. but to that, to that scientist a, at Duke, it's like the now. biggest, yeah. yeah, it's the biggest thing they've ever seen. So, so with all that said though, it's, it's, you know, like you said a minute ago, it hadn't, it's been a lot of stuff's been around for a long period of time. 
we just never paid attention to it. And honestly, you know, and you and I've had these discussions as, as myself and other trainers have talked about too. Yeah. We are just as an industry, then the law enforcement professional side, military side, we're just slow at change. We don't like change in general. We, we like what we like. We get comfortable with it and we're, and we're happy doing it and we see success. So we're like, we're good. We don't need to do anything. And, yeah. and sometimes just being that open-minded, even though if there's some change happening, the change isn't all that difficult. It just takes that, yep. that first step to go forward and try something different or to tinker with your dog and see, that, okay, that worked. But when you do that, by opening your mind, you start realizing, yes, the other ways work, but you know what? Doing it this way made it actually more efficient or I, I was yep. able to accomplish it a little faster than I was before or my dog's retention of it was way better than it was the other way I was doing yeah. it. So, yeah, I, my joke sometimes is, you know, those of us in law enforcement, does a typewriter still work? Absolutely it does. Yeah. But I would sure rather do my reports on my computer than do it on a typewriter. Yeah. So they're not. They, there's a lot of things that work. There's just some things that uh, when you take in some of the information that's available to you, both either from science or people with experience, you're then able to uh, – become more efficient at what you do, or you can look at it from a different angle and apply it that way and, and see success uh, in a new way. Yeah, I agree. And I think one interesting thing on that, just a quick side note on that, that I think you'd probably agree with, it seems like um, the longer people do this uh, profession, it seems like the more open-minded they get. You know, it's yeah. like, I think uh, once once you see that, you know, you, you did learn something a little while back, whatever it was, then all of a sudden I want to know more and more. So and that's what I've seen a lot more of is uh, a lot of very experienced handlers being really open to lots of different training methodology where before it was like, nope, we've always done it this way. And I don't see that. I don't see that as much as I used to. I see uh, a lot of exchange of ideas. Correct. Correct. The exchange of ideas things is happening now at a much faster rate because like you said, there's you know, like I said, we keep dating ourselves. We've been doing it a long time. And when we first got into it, canine world was so tribal. It was, you know, we yeah. did what we did in our area and the guys, you know, two cities yeah. over or a county over, they're a bunch of idiots because they do it that way. So don't do what they do, you know, or yep. we're happy yep. doing our thing. Let them do their thing. And everybody kind of stays yeah. in their own, you know, segments and doesn't cross a line like the yeah. old gang territory kind of thing. And yeah. the only I way to change some, some events now. No, like hits, hits is a okay, There's where, some events now that uh, mm -hmm. that help with that. So yes, you know, come to hits. Uh, we'll be in Phoenix in 2020, and uh, one of the things that I always tell people about hits, the real value is is exactly what Cameron and I are talking about: is to be able to meet other trainers, have a beer with them, uh, go to lunch with people that are not part of your training group, maybe not even anywhere in your area, and do some networking and start uh, picking other people's brains and share, and at the same time share some stuff you know. And I mean, I've learned some great things over the years from a very, very new dog handlers, just from things that either they were taught that I didn't know or things that they've come up with on their own. So uh, regardless of experience or how long you've been fortunate enough to do this, uh, networking is really important. And that's one of the, the really big benefits to a seminar like HITS is you, you can go there and spend, spend a, a good chunk of the week with a thousand other handlers uh, and go out, you know, in the evening and, and spend some time talking to them and uh, pick up some new training techniques. Uh, Cameron will be there as always. Uh, so he's going to be there teaching this class on cognition. And uh, we'll, we'll have some uh, videos there of the class, obviously. I'll have a little yeah. more to it. 
in the show notes today, I'm going to put in a link to some YouTube videos. I'll put some uh, stuff from Cameron in there, how to reach Cameron, see some of uh, Cameron's social media. He's got a lot of different things going on. So he's really easy to find, but I'll put the links in there so that you can track him down and uh, check out the videos and then uh, get a hold of Cameron if you're interested in doing a seminar, uh, in-person seminar. If you really like what you see, he'll come out to you or you can go to him in Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. uh, lots of different ways to, to get deeper involved in this. But I appreciate you jumping on here today, Cameron, because I think, as we just talked about, this is uh, a year ago, it was cutting edge and now it's uh, just maybe it's the the newest technology, but I think it's coming along. And I think yeah, uh, within a year or two, it's going to be very common that we're all going to be paying a lot of attention to this. Oh yeah, no. And like you said, it hits. The great thing will be, you know, the seminar that, you know, like I said, or the class that you and I always did together, the On the Mark, which changed to, you know, using cognition and detection. Yeah. Uh, this now, so the cool thing is students, when they go doing their, picking their classes, if you attend the uh, Understanding Cognition class, and then you go to the detection using cognition class, you will actually see the overlap. So you're going to see why we learned what we learned in cognition, then how I apply it on sure. the detection side of things. So it's a great overlap. So this will be the first year that in Phoenix where both of those things will overlap together. Yeah, it'll work out good. So, well, I know you got a lot going on there in uh, Vegas. So I appreciate you jumping uh, both days, you know, and getting these uh, two episodes done. If you guys have any questions about any of this, you can always email me, jeff at hitsk9.net. Uh, and check out hitsk9.net for all the information about HITS in Phoenix 2020. And again, Cameron, thanks. Take care. I appreciate you jumping on. Absolutely. My pleasure. If you're looking to make an investment in your canine career, come to HITS 2020. There's no substitute for the real thing. Whether you're a new handler who's looking to learn more about dog training or an experienced trainer who's looking for new training ideas and techniques, come to HITS 2020 where the investment is well worth the return. HITS 2020 will have more classes and more vendors who give away more free raffle gifts and free cash than ever before. HITS is the world's largest canine seminar and is open to police officers and military members. Our experience makes the difference. You've been there, and we've been there too.